Life podcast. We truly hope you'll be inspired and challenged today. Now, let's dive into this message with the family at Pleasant Ridge. We're going to be here in uh, Colossians chapter number one. And if you're just joining with us, uh, we've been walking and working our way through uh, the book of Colossians. And the Lord has been teaching us some things that are helpful for us as believers uh, to really see Jesus clearly uh, throughout this uh, book. And we're about ready to wrap up uh, chapter 1 here. And Paul is going to be talking about what we as believers should be striving for uh, in our life, and that is to have maturity in Christ. Uh, it is said of sharks that if you capture a small shark and you were to put that shark in captivity, that shark will never grow as long as it's in captivity. Even though a shark, if you were to capture a shark, let's just say about six inches, and you were to place that shark in captivity, that shark could mature to its full age, but never grow in length. It's not until that shark was actually released into uh, the wild, uh, back into its natural environment, that that shark would then grow uh, to its full length. When we look at these verses here that we're going to look at here in Colossians 1, Paul is going to talk to us about maturity and the kind of maturity that we should have, and that should be maturity in Jesus Christ. And I think a good question that we should be asking ourselves is, how have I been growing in Christ? How has my personal walk with the Lord been growing? Have I been maturing in Jesus Christ? And as believers in Jesus, I think we want to be good stewards of the time, the talent, the treasures that uh, we have. And since he's entrusted those things to us, how have we been using them to grow in our maturity with Christ? And so are you mature in Christ? And really our, in our text here that we're going to look at, and it's actually uh, verses uh, 27 and 28, or excuse me, 28 and 29, um, Paul is going to be sharing the purpose for which he really worked hard, and namely to present every person complete, as we see in some translations, or perfect uh, in Christ, but really it's the word mature, that he has been working hard to present Every single person, mature, complete, perfect in Jesus Christ. And so the standard for our maturity really is Christ. The truth is we have to grow up in Christ. We need to be putting away our childish behaviors. We need to be putting away our immaturity that we sometimes live in in the flesh. And we need to be growing up in Christ. And we should all aim at becoming mature in Christ as it's defined in Scripture. But that maturity should not just stop there. It should grow deeper than that. And it should be, as what we're going to look at here in our text this morning, that we should not only just be growing mature in Christ, but in turn we should be helping others grow mature in Jesus Christ. 
And so how do we do all this? And so this is what I'd like for you to take away with you this morning. Be mature in Christ and help others be mature in him while you depend on his power. So be mature in Christ, but help others be mature in him while you depend on his power. So let's take note here of our text here this morning. Colossians 1.28. And so if we are going to be mature in Christ, if we're going to help others grow in the maturity of Christ and depend upon him, first of all, we need to present everyone mature in Christ. Notice what Paul says here in Colossians 1.28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now notice what Paul says here. Him we proclaim. For what purpose? To present everyone mature. Mature in what? In Christ. You see, Christ is the goal of our maturity. The means to that goal is to do what? Is to proclaim Christ and working hard as we depend on his power. In the previous verse, in verse number 25, Paul talks about of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So here is Paul, and he has been a minister, he's been a servant by faithfully proclaiming the word of God. And as he's proclaiming the word of God, what is he proclaiming? Christ. Because Christ is the one in which we are able to be made mature. In verse number 28, as he elaborates on how he did this, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now take a look at that phrase, to present. This conveys really the same idea of a father giving away his bride. Now, how many of you fathers in here have given away a daughter for marriage? All right. You think about that, right? Um, I've been able to uh, oversee and perform uh, several weddings, and you see the, the, the father and the bride come walking down the aisle, and here is the father, and he's standing there, and he's going to be giving away his daughter. He is now presenting his daughter to this man that... Uh, she is going to be marrying. And so the idea here, Paul is saying that I want to be able to present you mature in Jesus Christ. Uh, we see in 2 Corinthians 11:2, Paul says, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, because I promised you in marriage to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. In Colossians 1.22, we're reminded about what the death of Christ has accomplished in our lives as the church. Listen to what he has to say here in Colossians 1.22. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And so you think about that. Here is Paul. He's laboring and he's struggling and he's saying, I want to present you holy and blameless before Christ at the marriage. And so we, the church, are to be presented as holy and blameless and beyond reproach to Christ as his bride at his second coming. Does that concern you at all? Meaning, 
Are you living in such a way right now that if Christ were to return, you would be ready to be presented to him as holy and blameless and mature in Jesus Christ? If you're not concerned about that, then you have some heart work to do. Because when Christ returns, he's returning for his bride. And he's expecting his bride to be holy and blameless, ready to meet him. Can you imagine going to a wedding and nothing was prepared for? The bride wasn't prepared, the the food wasn't prepared, nothing was taken care of, and all of a sudden people are running around scrambling to say, oh man, we got a wedding, it's going to happen, what are we going to do? It would be total chaos. That's why we have to be ready, ready to meet the Lord when he returns. And so we need to be ready so that we would be presented mature in Christ. But notice again what this text says here, and I love this. Look at Paul as he says this. He says, Him we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Notice Paul does not say here, I proclaim or that I may present. He says, we. He was talking to the church. He wasn't talking to just a select group of believers here who were the professional Christians. He's saying, you church, you, you, all of you, all of us are in this together in proclaiming Christ and warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom that all of us together here may present everyone mature in Christ. And so if you are a believer in Jesus, then you have a part in proclaiming him, teaching and warning everyone, and a part in presenting everyone mature in Jesus. So how are we to present everyone mature in Jesus? Well, you need to be growing in maturity in him. You cannot make disciples if you yourself are not willing to be a disciple. And really, wasn't that the command that our Lord gave to the church? Go into all the world and do what? Make disciples. And so if you are expecting to be presenting others mature in Jesus Christ, that means you, me, all of us, ourselves have to be growing in maturity in Jesus Christ. In Matthew 28, 19, Jesus said, Go and make disciples of all the nations. That's really the heart of the Great Commission. Paul teaches the same thing in his command to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2. He says, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so the job here of the church, the command of the church, is to be going and proclaiming Christ, and we need to be taking that and making disciples to other people who can make disciples. Faithful men, he says. And so Paul exhorted the churches where he ministered in 1 Corinthians 11.1. He says, be imitators of me just as I am also of Christ. He repeats that in Philippians 3.17, 1 Thessalonians 1.6, and also in 2 Thessalonians 3.9. Now you may be thinking, well, that's kind kind of intimidating, Mike. 
I can't, I can't teach other people. I can't, I can't sit there and teach other people how to be mature in Christ. Time out. Do you have children? Believe it or not, the example that you live is teaching your children. And so if you are being faithful to Christ and you're being faithful to what he says, you're being faithful to his word, you're teaching your children what? To be faithful to Christ, to be faithful to his word. If you, on the other hand, are not being faithful to Christ, if you're not being faithful to his word, what are you teaching your children? Not to be faithful to Christ and not to be faithful to his word. We, all of us in here are teaching. And so it's our job, it's our opportunity that we have to make sure that we are teaching people how to be mature in Jesus Christ. Where does that all begin? We ourselves have to be mature in Christ. We have to be that example. Also, if you've ever been a Christian for a month, you can impart the gospel that changed your life to others. There's some in here that only been a believer in Christ just for a little bit. But you know what? You can take what you know and you can give that to others. You can tell about how Christ has changed your life. Some of you in here have been believers for a long time. You know what you should be doing? Taking what you know and giving that to others. That's the command. And so wherever you're at in this process, God can use you to help others grow to maturity in Christ. But to do that, you've got to be growing to maturity in Christ yourself. You've got to be walking with the Lord each day. So how will I know if I'm growing in maturity in Christ? What does that look like? Well, let me give you a few helpful things that can gauge your maturity by. Number one, first of all, do not, do not compare yourself with other Christians. Meaning, don't gauge your spirituality by what another Christian is doing or not doing. If you do that, God's word says you are not wise. Remember, what is the goal of maturity? Christ. So what is the gauge of our spiritual maturity? Christ is the gauge of that. Not other people. Okay? So what does maturity in Christ look like? Maturity in Christ means developing Christ-like character and conduct. Now to describe this, we could go through really all throughout the Bible and we could catalog all kinds of stuff that tells us about Christ-like character and conduct, the traits, the behaviors uh, that we should be living as godly saints. But the supreme example, I think, of all of this, if we were really to set the bar high and if we were to say, okay, this is the standard. This is what we should make sure that we are living up to. Okay? It's really only two commandments. Jesus gave them to us. What were they? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? He says on these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. And so Jesus Christ says that those two great commandments, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, these are really our relational commands. And you can measure how mature in Christ you are by assessing your relationships with God and others. And so if our relationship with God is not right then surely our relationship with others is not going to be right. 
If your relationship with others is not right, you can rest assured, rest assured that your relationship with God is not right. He says on those two commands hang all the law and the prophets. And so we have to love God with all of our heart, our soul, and our mind, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. You see, love for God is more than just a warm, fuzzy feeling that you may get when you sit in a church service or listen to Christian music. Love for God, like love for any person, begins at a point in time when you begin a relationship with that individual. But there's a problem. You see, all of us have this problem of sin. And we cannot begin that relationship with Christ until that sin problem is taken care of. And that's exactly why Jesus had to die on the cross for our sins. So that we could be brought into the relationship with God. So that we could be forgiven and so that that relationship could be restored. So that we could have communion with God. We could have the relationship with God. And so Jesus Christ took our sin debt And the good news is that if you'll turn from your sins, trust in Christ's sacrifice for you, then God will forgive your sins and give you eternal life as a free gift. Romans 6.23 states, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so at the point you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you begin this relationship with God. But like all relationships, you have to spend time together. You see, it's not just a matter of saying, oh, okay, I'm good now. I got my sin debt taken care of. I'm good. Can you imagine a marriage of a husband and wife? They take their vows, they enter into a relationship together, and then the two never talk to one another? How bizarre would that be? You see... In our relationship with Christ, we have to spend time with Him. We spend time through Him, through the reading of God's Word, through prayer. And so we have to grow in that relationship. Mark it down. You will never have more love for God than you do for the Word of God. If you say you love God, but yet you do not spend time with Him in the Word... You don't love God. Because that is where we gain our relationship with God. That is where he speaks to us and shows us how we need to live our lives. And if we're not in the word, we're not growing in our relationship with him. And so we have to be growing in that through the word, through prayer. As you spend time with him in prayer, you draw near to him, you open your heart to him. As you learn and obey his commandments, Jesus promises that he and his father will come to you and make their home in you. John 14, 23, and also Ephesians 3, 17 talks about that. Uh, we have some little booklets that uh, we had there at the, at the uh, as you walked in there, if you didn't get one. My heart, Christ, home. And I encourage you to get this and read through it. It's really interesting. But he really talks a little bit about this, about how when we invite Christ into our lives, Jesus is supposed to have full reign in our hearts, not just parts of our lives, but the whole thing. But I encourage you to read through that. And so we need to be spending time in God's Word, through His indwelling Holy Spirit, And through all of that, what is he doing? He's transforming us. He's changing us 
to be more Christ-like. Paul instructed uh, the people at the church at Rome, he says this in Romans 12 too, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, Christ-likeness at its core involves the transformation and renewing of your mind in conformity to God's word. And so if you are not renewing your mind, you're not growing in holiness, and you are not growing in maturity. You have to be constantly renewing your mind. This is a day-by-day process. And so Paul says, I want to present everyone mature in Christ. Well, what does that look like, Paul? We have to be allowing the Word of God to change us. We have to submit ourselves under the authority of the Word and allow the Word to have its rightful place of authority in our lives. Christ-likeness will do the work in us. It's not us doing it. Christ is working in us, and he's changing us, and he's transforming us. Another way that we grow in Christ-likeness is through trials as God conforms us and he transforms our lives through the difficulties that we go through. James 1, 2 through 4 says this, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Interesting to note that that word perfect that James uses is the same word as translated uh, mature in our text here this morning. Psalm 119, verse 67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your words. Another helpful summary of Christ-like character and conduct is the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 23 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, temperance, and faith, self-control. Against such things there is no law. I recommend that you should memorize the fruit of the Spirit. How do we know if somebody is Spirit-filled? What's the mark of somebody being spirit-filled? They exercise the fruit of the Spirit. And so if we're not exercising the fruit of the Spirit, what does that tell us? We're not spirit-filled. See, these are all the marks of maturity that we should be striving for and growing in Christ-likeness. The New Testament is filled with other lists of godly character qualities. For example, in Ephesians 4, 25-32, tells us to put aside lying and to speak the truth, not to sin with anger, to stop stealing and start working. It tells us to use our tongues to build up, not to tear down, to clean out all of the bitterness and wrath and anger, yelling and slander, along with all malice. Ephesians 4.32 reminds us to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also forgave you. And so as you begin to put God's word into your heart, into your mind, and learn to obey it, you'll steadily start being transformed into Christ-likeness. And therefore, you will be growing in maturity. 
You know what most people use as the mark of maturity in their life? I, I, I would say even today in the Christian world that we live in today, the Christian uh, you know, culture that we live in today, oh, I went to church. I did some spiritual service, right? That's not the mark of, of spiritual maturity. Remember, what is the goal? That we be mature in Christ. He is the goal. He is the one that we're striving for. And so we are to present everyone mature in Christ. And so none of us in here have arrived. None of us in here are perfect. We will not be perfect until Jesus Christ returns. But we are to be striving and maturing in our faith in Jesus. And as we do that, as we grow in our maturity then we will then be able to present others mature in Jesus Christ. Here's the second thing. Proclaim Christ. If we are going to be mature in Christ and help others become mature in Christ, then we need to proclaim Christ. Notice again in our text, Paul is not talking to the full-time Christian worker here or just the elders of this church. He is talking to the whole church. We, all of us, are responsible in proclaiming Christ. When we gather together on a Sunday morning, what are we supposed to be doing? Proclaiming Christ. When we sing together, what are we supposed to be doing? Proclaiming Christ. When we pray together, what are we supposed to be doing? Proclaiming Christ. That's what Paul's talking about here. He says, we proclaim Him. We proclaim Christ. And so we should be proclaiming Christ as we pray for one another, as we serve and edify one another, as we gather together for fellowship. You see, every believer, Scripture teaches us that every believer is a priest. And we all have a ministry to fulfill. And Christ should be at the center of all ministry because He is what every person needs. Take notice of that word proclaim. What does that mean? It means to announce as a herald or a messenger in the days before mass communication, if the king wanted to get a message to his people, basically he sent heralds who would go out and proclaim. Right? Hey, I have a message from the king. I have a message from the king. Listen, hey, you guys over there on the wall, I have a message from the king. That's what they would do. They would go and they would proclaim the message. And as believers, what are we supposed to be doing? Proclaiming Christ, exalting Him, lifting Him up, proclaiming Christ wherever we go, whatever we do. And so we are supposed to be speaking faithfully what the word of the King says. And when we do that, there's a note of authority. When we as God's heralds of messengers proclaim Christ, you see, I believe that when we talk to people about Christ, Yes, we should listen to what they have to say. We should value uh, what they're saying. We respect them as human beings. But we don't present Christ as just saying, well, he's just one other person that you should consider. Just one of others. No, he's the only one. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes into Christ. Nobody comes into the Father except through him. And see, we proclaim Christ and we proclaim him in everything that we are supposed to be doing because he is the only source of eternal life. 
You know, you'll have opportunities to proclaim him to people who would never come to hear me or one of the other elders here teach. You all have a ministry wherever you're at. The bank that you use, the people that you frequently uh, see in life, the neighbors that are surrounded in your life, you have people in your lives that I would never see or any one of the other elders here see. What are you supposed to be doing? Proclaiming Christ. Proclaiming Christ. Notice what proclaiming Christ entails. Look what he says here. Warning everyone and teaching everyone. Warning and teaching with all wisdom. Now this is so important because proclaiming Christ means that we do not proclaim human wisdom. Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 1.21 that the preaching of Christ and the cross, that it is considered as foolishness to the world. In other words, they don't want to listen to it. In other words, they think that it's ridiculous, that that's stupid that you would believe something like that. It's foolish. But Paul says of the preaching of the cross and Christ, he says it is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. James chapter 3 teaches us that there is a wisdom that is marked by selfish ambition and it is unfruitful. James says in verse 15 of chapter 3 that this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Now please hear me out on this. When we listen to or seek out other wisdom that is from the world, you know what you're doing? You are inviting, not only into your life, but maybe even into your home, things that are unspiritual and demonic. This is why it is so dangerous for churches that invite, spirit, invite worldly wisdom into the church because it's demonic and it's unspiritual. What should we be doing? Proclaiming Christ. He is the source of all wisdom. He is the one which wisdom stems from. And we need to be faithfully proclaiming Christ. And so when we seek out other wisdom that is from the world to solve our problems, we are doing great damage to our lives. If we're going to proclaim Christ, then we need to make sure our message centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ as revealed in the Old and the New Testaments. We should not veer from this message, supplement it, or mix it up with worldly wisdom. I emphasize this because the enemy subtly undermines the message of the cross that confronts sinners with the guilt, with a more user-friendly message that does not offend. As one pastor commented on this verse uh, here in verse 28, he says this, if one were to look closely at many churches today and assess the shape and the form of ministry Verse 28 would likely need to be written as follows. Him we mention only in passing, lest we offend seekers or sound excessively religious, rather than warning or teaching. 
We seek to please and entertain everyone so that they might feel good about themselves and be reassured that all is well in the world. Where did all this stuff come from? In the mid-1950s, Norman Vincent Peale became popular by blending the message about Christ with the power of positive thinking. But in so doing, he did not truly proclaim Christ. And because he did not mention sin and judgment, but only the positive aspects of the gospel, Robert Schuller was influenced by Peel and promoted possibility thinking and self-esteem. But he denied the gospel because he did not proclaim Christ crucified. Why did Jesus die, folks? Because we were good? Because there was something wonderful in us? He died because we were sinners. And he took our sin debt. And when we live in such a way that we think that there's something great about us, it is just an attack on Christ because of what he done for us. That he died for us. We don't deserve it. But he died for us. And so Christ was crucified as the only answer for our sin problem. I would say today that worldly psychology has infiltrated the church in many ways. We've blended insights from godless men with Bible verses taken out of context. They're misinterpreted. For example, they tell us that to love God and others, we first need to learn how to love ourselves. And as a result, Christ and Him crucified is not proclaimed. And in short, Christ and worldly wisdom don't mix. So how do we make sure that we're proclaiming Christ? Well, Paul contrasted this human wisdom with God's wisdom in Christ. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 1, 21-24. For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so the sole source of God's wisdom is his word, which reveals Jesus Christ to us. In Christ, we have, as what 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4 says, all that we need for life and godliness. Can I ask you a question? Do you believe that God's word is without error? Meaning, everything that God gave us here is exactly the way that he wanted us to hear it. Do you believe that God's word is without error? Do you believe that God's word was inspired? Meaning that God took fallible men and told them exactly and moved upon them through the power of the Holy Spirit to write down exactly what he wanted them to convey. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God's word is sufficient? Meaning that we don't need to be seeking out other sources to solve our problems. 
meaning that God's word and God's word alone gives the answers to every single problem that we face in life. It is what Peter says that it contains everything for life and godliness. Do you believe that God's word is all sufficient? Then why don't we live that way? Why are we not seeking out Christ and his word for the answers to the problems in our lives? If we are going to be growing in Christ and we're going to be maturing in Christ and if we are to be presenting other people mature in Jesus Christ, we have to be dead settled on the fact that God's word is sufficient enough for me to grow in Christ and it's also sufficient enough for others to grow in Christ. We have to be proclaiming Christ. We have to be proclaiming what God's word says. Notice what he says here. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. And so we are to be warning. We are supposed to be uh, proclaiming and teaching. We're supposed to be admonishing people. That word warning has to do with the idea of admonishing people or correcting someone who is in sin or in error. Listen to what Paul urges in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Unruly refers to those who are out of step or undisciplined. To apply that verse, we need to discern whether the other person is really unruly, if they're faint-hearted or just weak. Not everybody needs admonishing. Now, some do, but not everybody needs admonishing. You know, it's my time that I've spent in the Word and going through Scripture. One thing that I have never been able to find is the spiritual gift of being a busybody. It is not up to us to go and try to fix everybody else's problems. We are to admonish, we are to encourage, we are to help. But I find that yes, there is a Holy Spirit, and I am not Him. But we as believers, as we are growing in Christ, if we see another believer that is struggling we're to go and we're to encourage them and help them in their Christian life and to help them along. And so we to be proclaiming and warning and teaching everyone. I listened to, listen to what Paul's encouraging words are to the believers at the Church of Rome. He said in Romans 15, 14, But I myself am fully convinced about you, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. And so we warn people, we admonish people, but also we teach people. I love this. He says that we are teaching everyone. Teaching is really the positive side of imparting truth. You know, there are some that are gifted to speak publicly and teach publicly. We understand that. But did you know that all of us are supposed to be teaching? For example, in, uh, in Ephesians, parents must teach their children. In Titus 2, 3, and 5, uh, 
some of the older ladies in the church, if you could listen to this, okay? Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanders or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can, then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. And so, ladies here in the church, you have a tremendous ministry that you should be fulfilling. And what is that? You should be t- teaching the younger women in the church to do what? To love their husbands, to learn how to love God. This is all part of how the church is supposed to be working, how it's supposed to be functioning. And so we're all supposed to be teaching so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Here's the last thing. Depend on Christ as he works in you. Notice what he says here. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. He says, I'm I'm toiling and I'm struggling with this. The word striving there, the word toiling and striving describes hard work. Sometimes uh, when our daughter, we ask her to go and do some stuff outside and work outside, she'll go outside and she'll pick up a couple branches. And after probably about the third branch, she goes, whew, shoo, this is hard work, whew, whew. Hard work. Can I tell you something? That to be presenting every person mature in Jesus Christ is hard work. Making disciples is hard work. Being a disciple is hard work. We toil and we struggle. Sometimes it involves praying with that individual. Sometimes it involves seeing that individual after you give them the word and you show them what the word says and that person decides I'm still going to want to do what I want to do and heartache and heartbreak. It's hard work. Paul says, I am toiling and I'm struggling with this because I want to present everyone mature in Christ. Now remember, where was Paul in all of this? He was sitting in a prison cell. He says, I'm struggling for this. I want to present everyone mature in Christ. Look at the person next, sitting next to you. Do you know that you have an obligation, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have an obligation to present that person mature in Jesus Christ? Are you toiling and striving to do that? Are you encouraging them? Now, I love this because he doesn't just leave it all on his own there. He says, I'm struggling, I'm toiling in this. But I love it, he says, with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. And so as we toil and labor in being a disciple and making disciples, as we're trying to help them become mature in Christ, and, and as we're trying to become mature in Christ, God in all his energy is at powerfully working, and it's at work in us, in you. Philippians 4.13, Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 
Paul did it, but he did it through Christ's power. Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. And so, in what ways do you need to mature in Christ? In what way can you be helping others mature in Jesus Christ? How is your maturity, how is your growth in Christ look? Have you been maturing over this past year? Have you been growing in Christ's likeness, growing in the fruit of the Spirit, growing in all those things, what, what he talks about? Whom in this church could you help mature in Jesus Christ? Who are you teaching? Who are you admonishing? Who are you helping grow in Jesus we all have this job to present everyone mature in Christ. Let's pray together. If you're interested in more information about our church or knowing the peace that Jesus gives, visit our website at lifeattheridge.church.